0: Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Well, guys, welcome to the Hub Roundtable in person, in video. Now, we can't promise this every week, but... Boy, we thought we'd start with a bang, didn't we? We have
1: an actual round table. That's great.
0: (laughs) Now, confessions be told here. um, I'm the TV pro, so I'm totally relaxed and chilled. I sense that Stuart, our friend here, is a little freaked out by video. But I want you to be impromptu, your usual zany self. It
1: really is sitting in the middle that's the problem.
0: It's not the TV itself. Well, the editor-in-chief belongs in the middle, though. (laughs) Here, here. Um, So, guys... You know, it was a slow week to start. You and I talked about that. Mm-hmm. And then, boy, something happened uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, that, again, it's just that perfect zone that we love at the Hub, this confluence of, like, policy, politics, news, elite opinion. It was the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, the mass resignations of the board, and yet another scandal, in a sense, to rock this institution that I think, Sean, um, had some Collateral damage for the PM this week. We're not going to rehash all the news. I think we want to take this conversation in some different directions. What was your kind of meta analysis of of what we saw, why this happened, the different players involved? Uh, to me, it's just a fascinating like Rorschach test for <laughs> you know elite liberal opinion and operations and positioning. Fascinating. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's love
2: weeks it. like this that John Ibbotson probably regrets not uh, copywriting Laurentian Elite uh, because uh, this whole story, everything uh, involved, all the players involved, um, it captures, I think, what he was getting at when he coined that phrase several years ago. Um, to kick things off, uh, guys, there's different ways I could take this, and I, I know uh, we'll probably get into um, what this tells us about the kind of coziness of our political class. But let me take it in a slightly different direction to start, which is one of the ongoing questions looming over the Chinese election interference scandal is whether we ought to trust and rely on the news reporting. Because, of course, we're depending on uh, anonymous sources. Mm -hmm. We're, in effect, putting our trust in the hands of Bob Fife and Stephen Chase and others um, that they're doing the due diligence to make sure what they're telling us is right. And one of the fascinating things this week is we're given the first opportunity to kind of test one of the claims made in these stories over the past several weeks. Great point. And it's, it's correct. It's been, it's been borne out. And so that only, for me, reinforces that much of the rest of the stuff that we've been hearing on this subject, including, for instance, uh, evidence that the, the prime minister's office was briefed on these claims of these allegations of election interference and did nothing, I think only reinforces that we need to know more about this. Uh, we're having this conversation, I guess, at about 10 or 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. on Friday. I note that the Prime Minister's chief of staff, Kenny Telford, will be for a parliamentary committee today uh, on that very subject. And I think this story will only put her in a tougher spot um, where uh, the obfuscation and the other uh, attempts on the part of the government to evade answers on these subjects is gonna become harder and harder. Yeah. yeah.
0: Stuart, I think one of the challenging things I felt was just this, the confluence of the Trudeau Foundation's approach to the media messaging around this and how it seemed to mimic the government's, you know, and let's go through a little bit of that, uh, not in great detail, but, you know, the foundation comes out on Tuesday with these mass resignations and characterizes them as somehow being a result of politicization of the issue of Chinese election interference doesn't mention the fact that there was a huge schism in the board, that members of the board were demanding that other board members recuse themselves, that the Auditor General be brought in to, in a sense, audit the foundation and find out what happened with this check. And we can get into that later. But Stuart, what interests me is that, you know, then the Prime Minister kind of gets caught up in this with, you know, uh, I don't know, was it just serendipity mimicking this polarization talking point I don't know, walk us through this. As an experienced journalist, when you kind of hear this stuff, I thought to myself on Tuesday, and I said to you guys on WhatsApp, something is coming Wednesday morning. And sure enough, there's this fabulous LaPresse story titled, It's a Stink Bomb.
2: Yeah,
1: and that reporting was, was caught the next day by the Globe, too. So they had four people from that board saying, we really wanted to look into this. The other people didn't. And that's kind of like a microcosm of this story, you know, on the whole, which is the government's like, listen, we don't really need to look too deeply into this. We don't need an inquiry. We need it to kind of be under the surface. And then you have a lot of people saying, no, this is really important. And I think if you're pure polyev, you think, I'm a little nervous going after the actual Chinese interference stuff, because that has these kind of connotations. It's diaspora politics. You don't want to get too deeply into that. But if you can just hammer Trudeau on cronyism, things like that, that you can do that for months, and it's fine. Yeah. That is Pierre Polyev's wheelhouse. So we're gonna start a five-week sitting of the house starting on Monday. They've been on a break. All this stuff has been happening while MPs have been in their home <laughs> ridings. So I think if you were a conservative MP or you were in Pierre Polyev's office and you were saying, this is a tough controversy for us because there's enough landmines that we need to be careful, the landmines aren't there on the Trudeau Foundation side of this. So um, I can imagine they'll have fun with this on Monday.
0: Yeah. There's another side to this, Sean, that fascinates me. And, you know, full disclosure, I know some people that are on this board. John English, you know, former member of parliament. Uh, I think very highly of him, a leading, you know, Canadian historian. He's actually the chair of the board. But, Sean, it just seems like this confluence, if you look at how that board's composed, the the origins of this foundation, a $125 million gift from the Canadian taxpayers to set up this quote legacy to Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And then the composition of the board, you know, has Tom Axworthy, the former, um, uh, what was he, a uh, policy advisor, you know, principal secretary. You have Pierre Elliott Trudeau's former chief of staff. You have uh, you know, a former child of Pierre L. Trudeau, Deborah Coyne, who's the half stepsister sister or something of Andrew Coyne. It just, it, it just seems so unnecessarily incestuous, right? And if I was that organization long before, I would have tried to have taken some steps. And I know there were attempts to bring people like Chuck Strahl and others into it, but clearly they weren't followed up, and clearly they weren't particularly authentic because those so-called right-of-center voices left this foundation. Over time. So you just wonder, Sean, you know, how do we get to this point? And does it speak to, I'm just saying, back to Pierre Polyov's key messages around gatekeepers, about an entitled elite, about an elite kind of self dealing? Yes. Uh, in this case, with a pretty big chunk of public funding, $125 million that was given by the Kretchen government to the then you know, uh, legacy project of the Trudeau family.
2: Yes, yes. And I, I think that's all precisely right, Roger. And those ongoing, the ongoing proximity to Big L liberal politics is precisely what made it susceptible to this kind of pay-to-play dynamic, right? The Chinese didn't give money to the period of Trudeau Foundation because they believed deeply in their scholarship programs. <laughs> they believed, fairly or unfairly, I guess we'll learn yeah. more, that um, this type of symbolic gift would be received well in official big, the world of official Big L liberal politics, including possibly uh, with the then leader of the Liberal Party and now, of course, uh, the Prime Minister, who just happens to bear the same name as the foundation. So I, I think that's exactly right, that they took a a, a a policy or a program that I think probably the three of us could see some value in, creating a scholarship program for high performing Canadian students or, or faculty to travel, study abroad, et cetera. Like that's a, we could have a reasonable debate about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, but that's not what this became. It became, in effect, uh, a place where the type of a, a big L liberal establishment that we've been talking about hung out. Uh, and ultimately it exposed this organization and the good work it may or may not have been doing a significant risk. Yeah. the Part
1: of the issue is we've been in the weeds on this, and if you zoom out a little bit and you say, what were they trying to get with the donation, but also with the interference? Why did the Chinese want so badly this outcome? And I think that's something we'll probably get into like a little more as the, the real details of the scandal become clear, but the, just the dispositional nature of that. Why would an adversary country want the Liberals to win an election? Maybe it's for reasons that, you know, are irrelevant to the Canadian voting in the election. But I think that's something worth considering as voters. Do you want to be agreeing with China on this one? Yeah.
0: Look, I mean, to the credit of some of the the board members on this foundation, they created this schism and they effectively blew it up. Um, I don't know, Sean, though, I think your reading is a little bit charitable about the foundation itself. My sense, having known about this foundation for a long time, um, is that they had their own kind of ideological POV. They had a theory of the case, they had a view of what Canada could or should be. They funded uh, you know, graduate students and you know research agendas, which again, all sounds terrific, but let's remember that was through a very specific ideological lens. And it's not complaining on my part, but I was never contacted by the Trudeau Foundation for anything, to be asked about anything. And I think there's a reason why, because I wasn't part of their tribe. And I guess what burns me up about this is that our tribe, to its credit, under your Prime Minister Stephen Harper, our Prime Minister, didn't give away $125 million to effectively a conservative PAC in this country to run its own ideological preference program for graduate students, for research agendas. We didn't do that. They did do that. They ran this thing, and they continue to run it, and it's going to continue to exist. There's nothing you can do about this foundation. It hasn't done anything illegal. It hasn't committed a crime. I think it's fully compliant with CRA. There's nothing offside here. This is more of a a political uh, maneuver and manipulation that went on within this board and caused the board and the members to blow up. This foundation is going to continue. It's going to reconstitute itself. Three of the Trudeau loyalists have remained on the board. Which
2: bizarre.
0: John English, the former chief of staff, Johnson, and others. Not David Johnston, the, the governor general. <laughs> you <have> to, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's telling that you, you have to clarify. Uh, I mean, he was a member, let's face it, up until very recently, and then stepped aside to yeah. become the rapporteur. So I don't know, guys. I just, because t- we're interested in public policy deeply at the hub. And to me, this whole thing was the product of a poison fruit. A poison fruit was plucked by the Christian government when this $125 million was given to this entity. Um, And I just, you know, I I wish this thing could be wound up. It will not be wound up. It will continue on. And it's kind of like, it's just funny that our side, for lack of a better expression, you know, we had the principles not to do this, and there was talk. You know this, Sean, in in the Harper years about creating some kind of right of center government funded group that was resisted rightly. But boy, here we are.
2: Yeah, let me let me say two things. First of all, uh, to defend myself in case view, listeners and now viewers uh, think I'm sounding like a squish, I'm partly reflecting a, a, a must read article that we published this morning by Howard Anglin, our you know one of our Um, best writers at the Hub who has a a nuanced take on on the story in part reflecting some of the, the points that I made about trying to set aside the, the mission of funding Canadian graduate students or young faculty from sure. the kind of deeper rot that, that we've been talking about. But the, the, the second yeah, thing- but if you,
0: if you want to do that, give money to, I don't know what it's called, the U21, the top universities, yes. the 21 universities across Canada. Let them fund graduate yes. students. We have all kinds of programs yes. for funding graduate students. Yes. We don't need a foundation that is frankly stacked with ex-liberal, yes. senior liberal political operatives yes. Yes. attached to a certain prime minister and attached to a certain
2: failing. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's hard to make the case that the, the granting councils who were primarily responsible for funding graduate research in Canada aren't sufficiently focused on social justice <laughs> issues. Um, but the, the second point I make takes up something you you, you observed um, about the, the fact that, that it, it says something about the nature of Big L liberal politics, that there was even assumption that um, there was upside to a kind of Play to pay to play scenario. You know, n- no one would have thought during the Harper years that we should give some money to the Fraser Institute because Stephen Harper will be more responsive because of that, or the Harper government will be more responsive, um, or the Manning Centre or the Hub or whatever. Uh, and it speaks, it seems to me, to uh, an underlying problem embedded inside the the dna of big l liberal politics in canada you know i I think it's fair to say i was saying this to you yesterday rudyard that i think on balance there's a pretty compelling evidence that big l liberal politics are have a larger level of support amongst the canadian population than than conservative politics do Um, but the challenge of course is liberals uh have within them, this kind of tendency towards excess, uh, of arrogance and entitlement. It gets them every time. Uh, and, you know, it, I think when you're so self-righteous, um, about your intentions and you are so unempathetic to the other side and the values and impulses that animate it, then you're prepared to effectively do anything it takes. Um, because, uh, because you're in effect protecting um, the perpetuation of Canadian values and ideals and all the rest, and um, the Chinese, the entire Chinese election interference story, it seems to me, reeks of that tendency. And this particular case does a lot because it's you're not even necessarily involving people who are at who are involved in day to day big L liberal politics, but who just drink the same bathwater, uh, and this is the outcome. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: it's. Um If you remember the siege mentality that Stephen Harper came to office with, Mm -hmm. um, it seemed a little over the top to an outside observer, but I think it was probably just a reading of the nature of the country, which is that we're never going to get the benefit of the doubt. We are a minority position, and that probably got him a majority, that kind of mindset. But it probably also sowed the seeds to the end of the majority, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the siege mentality can have a negative side to it. The liberals have the same problem, which is that, or the opposite problem, which yes. is that they assume the country is with them. It breeds complacency. Yes. And then the complacency ends up in situations like this. Awesome. Sponsorships again.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Stuart, what do you think, though, about these charges of unfairness that are circulating from, you know, top liberals? uh, That the media, in effect, is um, not only going after the prime minister, but going after this I mean, they say it with a straight face. Nonpartisan foundation. They've taken
2: s- down two great Canadian charities. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: what what is that? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of I don't know. It just seems so selective, right? Um, and I mean, how do you in the media? How do people in the media think about that? Do you just kind of just completely laugh it off, or is there is there some subtle pressure that builds when? You're being attacked on Twitter in social media by people that have hundreds of thousands of followers and they're trying to pile on you saying in a sense you're you're somehow not conforming to your own journalistic standards and ethics
1: yeah this is a, Sean mentioned this earlier but this is a good one because the vindication from the board half the board agreeing with the reporting is huge so that gives some real morale boosts to reporters that look there is stuff going on here the other thing is that, whenever you wage um, accusations of bias or anything like that i think that that's something the media needs to reflect on more where your worldview takes you as a reporter but there's very few reporters in the world who will give up a scoop no matter what it is right the idea of being the reporter who found the scandal that brought down a government um, is pretty intoxicating so i think that's what's happening on parliament hill right now it's Anything else that's going on is being sort of subverted by this chase of this scoop. So um, I I think that's, you know, something that reporters should consider, which is that the magnitude of a story is always a good question. Is this as big of a scandal as we're making it to be? Or is this something smaller? I think that's something we should think more about as reporters. But... um, the, the stuff that you're talking about is pretty weak at this point yeah. compared to the, the report.
2: It's wild to me, though. Um, I want to take this point up because in the past few days, uh, Pierre Polyev has had his elbows up in some uh, media veils with journalists in a way that, to be honest, turns me off a bit. I, I think it's it's unnecessary. It reflects uh, an instinct on the part of Polyev and the conservatives that I, I think um, uh, harms the, 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 the his of Perce- mm-hmm. his brand and perception, particularly amongst the types of voters that um, he's ultimately going to need to appeal to if he's going to win a government. But I don't see a huge difference between what he's doing yeah. and what liberal partisans are doing, uh, criticizing the media on some of these issues. Yeah. Uh, and the cognitive dissonance between those who say, polio threatens democracy, um, but us saying the Globe and Mail is a, uh, is a partisan rag um, that has you know single-handedly taken down two uh, charities for political reasons. Somehow that is high-minded, and uh, it, it it comes back I think to an underlying part of this conversation, which is there is something embedded in the liberal DNA that this prime minister and government had up until the past couple of years I think been more careful about, um, but maybe after seven uh, years it you know you you are who you are, your that your spots ultimately start to shift. It's
1: a tough spot for me because I've always believed politicians should mix it up more with reporters. Like We should have a little more back and forth because sometimes bad questions get asked. Mm. And the politicians don't push back. And then you're working on a faulty premise that sometimes infiltrates the discourse. Mm. Um, and also it just is a good thing, right? It's a good thing to have in a scrum. Um, so as much as I think that, it is funny seeing that coming from the other side now, mm-hmm. which is that you're willing to smash the globe over this story because it's bad for you. We're just, just, I want
2: you to speak because we're yeah. going to dominate the conversation. But no, no, you, no. You, no you, I'm per- you live in this. No, you- no.
0: no I, I, I've done enough bashing in the foundation. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to talk about where this goes from here because you do have a sense this week, partly because the foundation really is at the apex of liberal elite kind of power and formation in Canada, that there is a panic that is set in. Um, I've detected a kind of shrillness from, uh, you know, former senior liberals that are now coming out in the media and really leaning hard into this. So you get a sense, guys, possibly of a tipping point here where, you know, suddenly it's Wiley Coyote off the cliff, right? Um, What is your feeling? I want to come to you both on this. You know, in a weird way, is this foundation story kind of bigger than just a board having a schism? It's it's symptomatic of just a piling on of a series of pressure points that are now starting to seemingly alienate and freak out a broad swath of elite liberal opinion. And I think, guys, my argument would be for this party and this prime minister elite opinion matters in a way that it doesn't for the other parties. Yes. That that there is a, uh, a notion of being the natural governing party, yes. wanting to continue that for all kinds of different constituencies and, and groups that exist outside of the party, those groups being powerful and influential and having an effect on the party. You're nodding your head.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that premise. Um, and it, it seems to me that one of the reasons you're seeing that shift occurring within the world of, of Big L liberal politics, including its kind of auxiliary elite institutions, is because they're taking this water on, not because they're advancing progressive priorities that they care about. They're taking it on um, because the prime minister has not been transparent with us and them about where this ultimately ends. Yeah. Um, and so I I think this is, he's internalized, the way he's handled communications on the Chinese election interference story has caused him to personally internalize the issue. Um, you know, Stewart mentioned that parliament isn't sitting this week. Imagine you're a liberal member of parliament watching this. You're like, I'm gonna go to a birthday party this weekend at some <laughs> old folks' home and take this stuff and I can't really defend it because I, I don't know precisely what I'm ultimately defending. I think this, in a way, represents the biggest threat to Prime Minister Trudeau we've seen to date. And as um, uh, David Frum said to me a couple of weeks ago, the Liberal Party has been the natural governing party one, for a number of reasons. One of them is, is it's the least sentimental organization in the Western world. And in that sense, um, I, I do think you're you're reading um, the, the kind of political tea leaves, right? Yeah, do you have that feeling too, sir? Yeah,
1: yeah. I agree. I think... Um, You know, there is something different about this because it's it's built on exactly what Sean said, which is that we've been saying even before this started, they seem out of gas. They seem like they've done all the big things they wanted to do. And that sense of mission is really important in a government Mm. when you are dealing with all of this kind of stuff that's demoralizing. Think of all the MPs who had to go in front of a committee and embarrass themselves. You only do that if you're doing stuff you care about. And at this point, if you're a backbencher your chances of cabinet are evaporating or they're gone. Um, there's not a lot of reason to be out there doing that stuff. And then you lose that kind of zeal. There's a lot of zeal in the conservative party right now, um, both in good ways and bad ways. Um, but it's an energy that I don't think that liberals can match. Liberals can match.
2: We, we are going to hear about abortion a ton next week. I, <laughs> I'll bet you guys a beer tonight. Yeah. Um, and that's a sign that the liberals are flailing and throwing stuff against the wall and reverting to their kind of old playbook. Um, and I think that does not bode well uh, for the prime minister and the government. I'll just make one final point. Um, that only reinforces that this is the moment that Pierre Poilievre is for the first time really going to get uh, a, a kind of a, on the part of Canadians, a, a, a real look. Yeah. Um, and the question for him in the coming days and weeks is can he prove to enough people he's up to the job? And that probably means um, um, resisting the temptation towards excess that we see from him sometimes and actually delivering the message that I find so compelling that, uh, that he personifies about social mobility, about meritocracy, et cetera. Um, that's the parapoly that's going to ultimately win Canadians over, not the one who's uh, email, writing letters to Elon Musk asking him to designate the CBC as a, as a state-run media. Yep.
0: Well, thanks for that, Sean. Uh, Great insight. Um, Guys, we are here in person for a reason. Uh, The second anniversary of The Hub, two years of publishing, 365 days a year. Um, It's been a good run. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, we're not out of gas.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of exciting announcements this week too, which I think hopefully conveys to the listeners and viewers um, that as we start year three, there's a lot of energy and momentum Um, behind the work that we're doing.
0: Yeah, so definitely check out, um, Amanda Lang's joining us this uh, week as a regular contributor. Uh, Gonna be talking to you, Sean, every two weeks about the intersections of business, economics, and public policy. We've got a new rafter of contributors that Mm -hmm. you and uh, Luke are gonna be working with. They're raring to go. It's going to be great. <laughs> That's exciting. And uh, we've got, um, you know, some new stuff that we've done on the donor front. So single individual donations, think of it as a tip jar. We've got uh, gifting the hub to friends. You can give a, a subscription to our daily email and a spiffy hub baseball cap to that special person in your life. <laughs> and we launched our advertiser program, which I'm kind of excited about. We've already had some great outreach in response to that. So if you have an important kind of publicly spirited public policy message that you wanna to communicate to Canadians, we think the hub is an interesting uh, platform to do that on. Um, if you have one ambition for year three, what is it, John?
2: Oh, man. Well, it's hard to say. Last year, we we kind of overdid it on the podcast. We got George Will, (laughs) Ross Douthat, Russ Roberts. I don't know. That's like my troika of public intellectuals. (laughs) I don't know how we're going to beat that. There's no more worlds left to conquer. (laughs) (laughs) But I I just think the steady growth that we're seeing, and most importantly, guys, um, uh, as Rudyard put in his piece this week, um, modeling a, a better form of public policy discourse and analysis, um, you know it's a small thing that we can do, um, but I, I think it's an important one. Uh, in a moment of polarization, of political toxicity, of what we've talked about as anger factories, I, I think the, the hub at its best um, uh, pushes back against those trends and tries to give our readers um, the kind of dispassionate, rigorous analysis that we think we need To navigate some of the big challenges facing Canadian society. And for you, Stuart, if you had a big goal for year three, what would it be?
1: Yeah, I think that we have had some big hits on some of our content, and I think the goal is to keep doing more of those things. You know, the things that worked, we'll double down on that. So that's our goal for year
0: three. Plastic bags, who knew? (laughs) (laughs) I knew. (laughs) Steve LaFleur, thanks for that one. Is our top performing piece for the year? are getting up there? Uh, CBC, CBC, uh, your piece. Depends what annoys okay. you more, plastic bags <laughs> or the CBC. Okay, okay. Perfect note to end on and just to say, I think for me the big goal is, you know, more um, diverse funders. So getting more small donors, getting more industry associations, um, uh, corporations, again, with those publicly spirited public policy messages. If we can bring them into the Hub's funding mix, that's going to give us new resources to do all the work that we do. And small donors are just such an important part of that. So please check out our website, www.thehub.ca, and uh, grab a Spiffy Hub baseball cap, 25 cents a day. I mean, come on. <laughs> With inflation? That's like, uh, it's like nothing. Um, anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll do this all again next week. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.